Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We're kind of getting through the meat of the tech earnings. Um, and, you know, uh, the stocks I used to follow are the big uh, social media companies, the Googles, the Facebooks of the world. So I always continue to keep an interest in that. Pinterest. Is what was the, the biggest deal, by the way? What was the biggest deal you did as an investment banker? AOL buying Time Warner. We represented AOL. Okay, so that's the same wheelhouse, and I, I always think about the radio. I did uh, all the radio IPOs. Those yeah. were fun. Those were fun. That's why I love being in the radio biz now. But I look at Pinterest. I'm not a user, um, but it's a thing. I get it. I Boy, they put up users. some good numbers. Stock up 12%, but I look at around the digital advertising space, and I saw some serious hiccups here. So I want to get a sense of what's going on out there. So fortunately, we have Mark Douglas live in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio, not phoning it in like a certain interest rate analyst <laughs> I know. Uh, Mark is the CEO at Mountain. Um, Mark, we've had Google, we've had Facebook. I'm not going to use the metas, and this is a meta-free yeah, studio. We, we're, we're all going struggling to remember that. Yes. So, but, you know, but I see Snap, I see Pinterest. Is these is the, I guess, secular growth of digital advertising, is that story kind of playing out, or do we still have room to grow? Um, it's not playing out. I think the way to think about it, and this goes for your personal finances, this goes for investing, is everything that's closest to the consumer, the consumer making a purchase, is going to do very well okay. in tough times. And everything furthest away is going to struggle. So... Like in, in digital advertising, Roku is furthest away. Brand ads, you know, yeah. not really at the point of purchase. Google is close. Pinterest is actually very close to the point Radio of is close. Radio is close. <laughs> and so it goes also for other categories, streaming television. You know, that, that the first three streaming services you like, you're going to keep paying. If you're number five on that list... As a consumer, you're going to be like, I'm cutting something, right? Okay. And so you're going to cut that off. It goes for everything. And so digital advertising is fine. You just have to focus on the companies that are closest to the point of purchase. And uh, what are you seeing in terms of the clients that you work with? What are they doing to increase their reach to the consumer or yeah. get closer? Yeah, so they're generally reevaluating where they're spending and then the things that are doing well for them, they're actually increasing spend. So those are those categories we all know, paid search, paid social. Um, the, and then those things, again, they're furthest away, they're, they're taking spend away from that. And because they just literally can't afford it or at least can't afford the risk if the economy struggles a bit more. Right. So that's a that's a cyclical issue. It sounds to right. me the secular story of just 20 percent growth in digital advertising. Are those days kind of behind us here or do we because I've got Google, I've got Facebook and I guess I've got Amazon as my big three digital advertisers. Can they 
combined continue to drive this market higher? Yeah, I mean, well, Google and Meta, uh, uh, we agreed <laughs> we were going to call it Facebook. Yeah, I already sorry. fell off that chair. And we also don't say Alphabet. Okay. Just so you know. <laughs> All right, I'm on yeah. that train. Um, no pun intended. Right. <laughs> <laughs> As a New Yorker. But, no, they, they obviously just have incredible scale. So yep. at that scale, at 10% growth, those are still really, really big growth numbers. Amazon is on fire in terms of their business, both the advertising business and AWS, right. which essentially are almost funding the retail business, for, at least from a profitability perspective. And so I think those are good. But the, you know, the, the area I'm in, streaming television, continuing to grow. Obviously, um, Netflix, I should say. Obviously, Netflix is, you know, they have like 70, 80% consumer market share in the U.S., and it's yep. just kind of hard to grow from that. But I think the overall streaming market, this transition from old school linear television, cable, yep. to streaming, that's not slowing down. That's continuing how to grow. Many, how many but, of streamers do you think will be, I don't know, left standing at the end of this? I mean, is it is it three? Is it five? Is it the Fifty five hundred we had on cable TV, or there, well, there's a consolidation going on right now. When you look at the television industry, the biggest companies are like half the market. So I'm talking like Disney, which people forget, also owns ABC, owns ESPN, owns Disney, like has all these properties. And then you look at Discovery Networks and their merger with Time Warner, I believe, right? right? Yep. And so the, the, you already have a consolidation underway. It's just kind of happening under a bit below the surface because people are not paying attention to it. So I think you're going to wind up with just a relatively small number of very large players you know, kind of um, focused on that market, but in a new way because consumers are watching TV on the subway. They're watching it in back of taxis. They're obviously still watching it at home everywhere. With the sound up, by the way. Yeah. By, by the way, um, okay, you can be honest with me here. As we watch Nancy Pelosi get off of her plane, Greg Jarrett says it looks like a 757-200 or a C-32A. I'm a pilot, by the way. Oh, yeah, pilot's license. I'll I'll try to call that for you. (laughs) I would agree with the 757 from from the shot I'm seeing right now. Uh, As we watch that, and I'm I'm not really necessarily, I don't have anything to say about this because we already saw her land. It looks like she's safe. Everything's cool, and the markets have breathed a sigh of relief, but... Does news, how is news doing in terms of television? Obviously, streaming news is kind of a silly thing because you want it right away, live, right? But yeah. I don't, for example, I don't even have cable TV at all at my house. Yeah, you know? so, I, so live television. I mean, I watch Bloomberg on the Apple TV, but I don't watch other kinds of news. Are pe- do people watch CNN, MSNBC, Fox, Bloomberg, are, are, they, are they paying for that? Are we, are we losing money? Is this a loss leader for, for Mike over there? What's yeah, the deal? well, so I think most people are watching the news via their um, Instagram account and their TikTok account. That's scary. <laughs> that's <laughs> really scary. Dude. So I think that's most people's number one news source. I, you know, obviously, I think you're trying to get me in trouble here. So no, no, I'm just, I'm just CNN and Fox. But, but you make a good point. You know, yeah. I, I remember uh, I was talking to a barista a couple months ago and she hadn't gotten her vaccine i asked her why and she said because she saw on the news that it can paralyze you to get the vaccine i said what news were you watching she said oh i saw it on tiktok that was her news the vaccine paralyzed yeah by the way that isn't true right but no yes 
but so, but yeah, I mean, obviously CNN has is struggling right now. I think Fox knows who their audience is. Oh yeah, and they have a very engaged audience, and and also an audience where news is part. Yeah, I I I actually own some land in Kentucky, so I know the middle of America. And All it, they want to know about is Hunter Biden and see, like, <laughs> California man fights off store robbers. <laughs> like um, 24 but, hours of well, Fox well, coverage, the, you know? Well, news is also entertainment these days, so let's leave it For at that. For sure. All right, so back to entertainment then. I have noticed lately Amazon Prime is knocking it out of the park. Yeah. I mean, they had uh, the Terminal List, which is hard for me to try and watch Chris Pratt in a serious role, but... Anyway, yeah. they had Jack Reacher. That was killer. Yes, great They show. had uh, Outer Range, which I love with, I think, Josh Brolin. Um, they're just they're just taking it over. Yeah, so they're, they're obviously, you know, the interesting thing, I, I actually talked to someone at Amazon, very senior mm -hmm. executive. Their biggest issue with Prime is a lot of the people at Prime subscriptions don't realize it includes television. Yes. It includes video. Yep. And so they, so first they have to, they need their Handmaid's Tale. They need that show that everyone wants to watch, and they're investing heavily in getting that. And then they have to remind everyone that, hey, by the way, you have access to this as part of getting your packages delivered same day. So they're they're really in it. Um, I uh, my company used to be based in L.A. Since the pandemic, we're fully remote right now. And when we were in L.A., Amazon built a huge movie studio in Culver mm -hmm. City. And, I mean, a million square feet of space to produce shows, to, to manage all that. So they're, they're heavily investing all in, along yeah. with all the other big companies. They don't have the Adam Project, though. No, they don't. The Ryan, Ryan Reynolds continues to Did you get it. a cameo in that? <laughs> the, um, I have, have no cameos in Ryan's movie. I have, no? a cam I have a cameo in his actual life right now. So. <laughs> Just for the listeners, uh, Mark and Mountain, Ryan Reynolds is their chief creative officer. So is that the right title? Is that yeah, the title? it is. It's yeah. It's been an incredible partnership. Mark, you, you mentioned your folks are remote. Is that permanent? How, how's that working? I mean, you look around here. Mike has like this phenomenal office for us. Nobody's here. Yeah. So we we at the relatively early in the pandemic, we decided when the, everyone scattered, including yeah. me. I went to I left L.A. and actually went all over the world. I went to Tulum, Mexico and spent nine months there. Nice. I had a very nice... I thought you going to say back to the Bronx, but no. Tulum is nice. <laughs> Tulum's yeah. pretty cool. Bronx yeah. is good, too. And so we just decided we're going fully remote. We decided in May of 2020, no, um, maybe June of 2020, we're going okay. fully remote. And um, we do four off-sites a year to bring the team together. Right. It's been fantastic. All right. That's good stuff. Interesting. Every, uh, everybody's adapting. Everybody has adapted, is adapting. Mark Douglas, President and CEO of Mountain, joining us live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. That is very cool. We appreciate him taking the effort to come in here. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. 
Right now, let's check in with James McCann, Deputy Chief Economist, uh, Aberdeen Standard Investments. James, thanks so much for joining us here. Boy, tremendous amounts of news flow. We've got central bankers making statements all over the place, raising interest rate. We've got earnings. We've got GDP prints. Uh, we've got geopolitical issues, obviously, in Europe. Uh, and today, the, a lot of focus on Taiwan. When you step back and think about where the U.S. economy is going, I wonder how you kind of put all those pieces together. How do you think about the U.S. economy and maybe even, you know, the global economy really over the next six to 12 months? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. There's just a huge amount to unpack here. I think what's very clear from the U.S. data is that we're going into a, a very pronounced soft patch. I think the fact that we've had a huge energy price-driven, commodity price-driven price shock has had a larger effect than many had expected on on consumer sentiments, on consumer spending, etc. So, you know, definitely we're seeing strong signs in the data of a soft spot, of a soft patch. We're not convinced this is a recession. I know last week after the two quarters of negative growth, there's been a lot of speculation and concern that we're already in recession. We're not convinced that we're there yet. But look, the risks are, are definitely increasing. And then when we look on a longer term horizon, we do think as the Fed tightens policy, as financial conditions have already adjusted very, very significantly, stress in markets has increased. You know, we think the outlook as we go forward is for a further deterioration in growth. And while we, you know, as I said, we don't think we're in recession at the moment, mm. we do think prospects over that sort of 12 month horizon are pretty dim. So we have a lot of concerns about where the U.S. economy is going and we know when where the U.S. economy goes, the, the global economy tends to follow. I mean, it's pretty hard to obviously um, the technical definition normally or the rule of thumb is two quarters of contraction. But if you look at this economy with three and a half percent unemployment and, you know, six or seven percent nominal growth, um, it's difficult to see it or more. It's difficult to see it as a recession now. Uh, on the other hand, we had an interesting note by Zoltan Poser, Posar overnight, um, and our colleague Ira Jersey from Bloomberg Intelligence also has said that this is a Fed that wants to fight inflation and is sort of determined um, to turn this inflation around at the risk of pushing the economy into a recession or, as Posar said, even a depression. Do you think we're going to go to 5%? Do you think we're going to go to 6% as the outliers are saying? Or um, do you believe the market that the Fed's going to get to three and a half or four and then turn tail and run back down? Um, by that, do you mean, sorry, unemployment rates? No, no, I mean uh, the, the terminal rate. The Fed it, right now uh, at the top range is at 250, right? And yeah. uh, even yeah. if they do 75 again, that's only three and a quarter. And, the, and yeah. if you look at futures, the market thinks they're going to go to four, maybe a little more, and then come back down already next year. But does that mean we're going to ha already have met our 2% inflation goal by next year? Or are they going to go early? What, what do you think um, the, uh, the, yeah. the timeline no, no, is going to be? I, I, I totally understand. I, I think that the difficulty for the Fed at the moment is it's seeing signs of weakness in the growth, but it's just not comfortable. And I don't think we'll be comfortable for a while in pivoting. And that's because it's just going to take a while to get inflation under control. Even if growth slows, the economy looks just enormously imbalanced still. So I think today's jolt states were really interesting. They showed openings fell 
pretty significantly, but they're still, from a historical standpoint, just extraordinarily high. And it just tells me the Fed has more work to do in taking some of the heat out of this economy. So we certainly think the Fed has a ways to go in terms of its tightening. But we probably agree that the you know, the terminal rate looks most likely to be around three and a half percent. So, you know, still a, a fair a fair chunk of tightening to come. It's not impossible that the Fed has to go to go higher. Certainly, if that inflation proves, you know, more difficult to 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 to. to but you think with that kind of terminal rate, they could get down to two? We were at nine point one. I, I know they don't go by headline CPI, but yeah. uh, what's core PCE right now? Like five, five and change. Yeah. Um, can they get back to two with a terminal rate of only four? Yeah, sorry, I, I, the, the connection's a little bit poor here, but I think they can. I think they can definitely cut rates, and I think they can do so potentially quite quickly. I think that has to happen sort of late next year into 2020, 2024, potentially. But really, what you need to see is that inflation fall. When it falls, it could fall quite quite quickly. You know, certainly the energy price dynamic, I think, is already going to be disinflationary through the summer. And if growth slows could provide further disinflationary impetus, I think global goods prices could moderate quite quite rapidly, given weakening demand and improving supply chain conditions. So it's not impossible that some aspects of their you know, inflation picture improve quite quite rapidly. I think what they really need to see is that core services inflation moderate. And for that, they need to see labor market fees and wages start to come down. And then I think they'll be more confident that the run rate, perhaps not the year-on-year rate, but the run rate of monthly inflation is coming in more in line with where their inflation target is. And actually, I, I don't think they're going to put the economy into a depression to achieve that because I don't think inflation will be that stubborn. You know, But certainly we think that you know, consecutive, you know, a period of very weak growth or recession will be enough to sort of shake that inflation genie back into the bottle maybe as a, as a way of putting it. And that will allow them to cut as we sort of move into late 2023 and 2024. But that's a, we have to get the tightening in first, I guess. James, how about the consumer? The consumer is kind of hanging in there pretty well. And Matt mentioned the uh, relatively strong, very strong employment uh, uh, position. Uh, but there are some concerns about savings rates coming down, credit card rate uh, balances going up. How do you view the consumer? Look, I think the consumer in aggregate is is in really good shape when we look at their balance sheet. So, if we think about debt, the ratio of debt to income, then that's a sort of multi-year lows. We know there's a lot of accrued saving, even if the flow of saving, the monthly saving that they're doing is sort of back to pre-crisis norms. They've built up a big stockpile of, of saving. I guess the key question for the consumer is, you know, what do they do with that, that wealth? Are they happy to keep on, on spending it, especially as the economic outlook starts to starts to darken, especially as the labor market starts to weaken? Do they switch to perhaps a more precautionary stance? I think that's what we're already seeing signs of, of of coming out is that consumers at first were looking to spend through this inflation the impulse. Now they seem a little bit less convinced. So, you know, I don't think the consumer's in terrible shape, but I do think they'll become increasingly cautious about how they spend their money. I think that's going to be felt most acutely in durable goods sector just because they've spent so much in that in that part of the economy over the last two years. Maybe services still has a bit of insulation. People are getting back to normal to, you know, going back to their lives pre mm. pre pandemic, spending on holidays and, and, and eating out, etc. But yeah, I do think the outlook for the consumer. I want to go to Edinburgh. Be- <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's my next exactly. holiday. All right, James. When do they, when so- they do that log throwing thing? When do they do that big Scottish the Highland Highland, game. Highland games? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
When's yeah, that? Not far outside Edinburgh. Um, that was that, that's later this year. So, so you should definitely get there. But yeah, I'm the signing up. Not great. Tell, tell, <laughs> tell. Well, hopefully it cools down. Tell Luke Hickmore I'm on my way. All right, James McKinnon, Deputy Chief Economist, Aberdeen Standard Investments. Thanks so much for joining. us. All right, all eyes on uh, Taiwan today. Uh, Speaker Pelosi's plane did land moments ago in Taiwan. Now there's a red headline across the Bloomberg terminal. China to carry out military drills encircling Taiwan. So here we go. Uh, let's get the latest uh, on all things uh, Taiwan and, and from the speaker. Emily Wilkins, Washington reporter with Bloomberg Government, uh, joins us here. So, Emily, uh, here we go. Uh, the speaker's in Taiwan. What is the expectation in Washington, uh, hopeful or not, about how this will play out? I mean, I think the expectation in Washington, number one, th this is an absolutely historic day. It is a historic trip. This is um, the first time in a quarter of a century that one of the top lawmakers in America, the, the third in line from the presidency, is in Taiwan. Uh, we saw that uh, Taiwan even projected um, onto a building near the airfield a message welcoming Speaker Pelosi and, and saying that the Taiwan and you, the, the, that Taiwan loves uh, the U.S. And so it is a huge trip for those reasons. But when you look at exactly what is going to be accomplished here, Pelosi already put out a statement saying that, you know, that this does not change how the U.S. sees Taiwan. It does not change U.S. and Taiwan relationships. The U.S. is sticking with the status quo. But she also notes that at this point, the U.S.-Taiwan relationship is more important today than ever as the world faces a choice between uh, autocracy and democracy. Those were words that the speaker uh, released in a statement shortly after she landed. So she's seen a larger historical context here. I think after Russia invaded Ukraine, a lot of folks started asking, could we see similar with China and Taiwan? And so even though this trip does not involve a policy shift, it is sort of a, a signal about where the U.S. sees Taiwan and the allegiance uh, that, that both have with each other. Now, Emily, you spend a lot of time um, in the halls of Congress. Is this something that, you know, one of those rare issues that has support on both sides of the aisle? It, it does. It really does. I mean, we saw uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, certainly someone who's never been afraid to criticize Pelosi in the past, basically encouraging her to go on this trip, saying that if she didn't, she would be handing China a win. We heard very similar rhetoric uh, from the House Re Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy. Uh, you've heard the same from in Pelosi's own party. Certainly, there have been security concerns that we have heard from the Department of Defense, from the Pentagon. There's a recognition that this is a sensitive time within the relationship between Washington and Beijing. At the same point, I, I can't think of a single House member who has really come out and said, we don't want Speaker Pelosi to be going on this trip at this time. Certainly, there, this is going to have to be a trip where the Speaker needs to be cautious. She needs to be careful in what words she uses and the actions that she has. At the same point, though, this is not Pelosi's first rodeo. I mean, she was in 1991, right. went to Tiananmen Square and, and protested. Um, the, the killings there the previous two years. And so she understands the region. She understands the aspects. She understands the dynamics. And certainly uh, she's been in a position of power long enough to, to really understand what would and would not be considered uh, in line with the current status quo. Emily, Matt and I are looking at uh, Live Go, and we see a, a, a view here. It appears to be of a hotel in Taiwan. It looks like the press corps may be assembling here. Do we know 
Uh, or what do we know of Speaker Pelosi's schedule for tomorrow in, in terms of events, in terms of press availability, that type of thing? So we haven't gotten a ton of details about this trip. I mean, the Speaker's office, I don't think they ever even confirmed that she was actually going to <laughs> Taiwan until the plane touched down and this statement came out. We do know that she is planning on meeting with officials within Taiwan, within the legislature, uh, with Taiwan's president, um, that those are all things on the agenda. Remember, too, this is a part of a larger trip. She was in Singapore. She is still planning on going to Japan and to South Korea. Um, and so it will definitely be a very closely watched trip for Speaker Pelosi. Um, but in the, in the same at the same time, um, I think there are there's a sense that the most historic thing that she's done is today simply landing here stepping off the plane and becoming the first speaker in 25 years to do so what kind of uh legislation is um circulating in washington in support of taiwan because we used to have a mutual defense treaty until we basically quit out of it in 1979 is there anything like that on the books so at this point that hasn't been a giant focus. Um, the things that you've seen Washington be really consumed with right now are mostly domestic things, that, that reconciliation package that uh, uh, kind of rose out of the dust the other week. Uh, stuff for veterans are, are very much on lawmakers' minds at this point. But you have seen really that bipartisan willingness in Congress to pass legislation um, that would sort of you know slap China on the wrist for human rights abuses, um, that would kind of continue to establish U.S. dominance in, in the markets over China. Uh, you recently saw lawmakers uh, take up that $52 billion deal in semiconductors with the idea that more of them now need to be made in the U.S. so that the U.S. does not rely as much on China and, and partly Taiwan should China make some sort of move uh, to change the status quo there. And, you know, the, these are right. the things that I think lawmakers are, are more focused on at this time. Emily, great stuff. Thank you very much for your reporting. Really appreciate getting the update there. Emily Wilkins. Congressional reporter for Bloomberg Government based in Washington, D.C., giving us the latest uh, Speaker Pelosi in Taiwan. Her plane landed just moments ago. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. We want to bring you uh, this interview with Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi talking about the company's recent earnings with Bloomberg's Guy Johnson and Emily Chang. Certainly some very good numbers coming out of there. Let's bring you that interview right now with the CEO of Uber. Dara, thank you so much for joining us. A happy day. I know when the stock is that much in the green, you hit a record on bookings, revenue more than doubled. Dig into some of the trends here. What was so different about this quarter than the last few quarters when it came to supply and demand? Well, to some extent, it's a continuation of the last few quarters, but we're really hitting a scale point here. Like you said, $29 billion in gross bookings, up 36% on a year-on-year -year basis uh, as it relates on a constant currency basis. Our EBITDA, $362 million, well above our guidance range. 
and the guidance that we gave forward was well above street estimates, et cetera. So an indication of anticipated strength coming. And then a really important factor for us is we're free cash flow positive, $382 million in free cash flow, uh, which is a big positive factor in our being self-sustaining and profitable going forward. And when we look at the environment, the marketplace is more balanced. The number of new drivers that we're adding in the US is up over 70% on a year on year basis, surges down, ETAs are down. Uh, so the business is really hitting in all cylinders and it's reflected in the stock price, which is great. Dara, thank you. We're, we're looking at live pictures from Taipei where House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's motorcade has just arrived at a Taiwan hotel. We're gonna keep monitoring of course, her big visit to Taiwan. I do want to ask you a little bit about the broader environment, Dara. I still hear people say uh, Uber is expensive, and we're seeing uh, Uber benefiting from this when you look at your earnings and the bottom line. How do you think about this dynamic longer term? Do you worry at all about alienating customers when they're already getting squeezed, given that this is the worst inflationary environment in Uber's history? Yeah, I think inflation is hitting all of us, whether it's grocery prices or fuel prices. And remember, uh, fuel is a big component of our driver costs. So that affects Uber prices as well. And you do see it in our results. While trips were up 24%, which is really, really healthy growth, uh, gross bookings were up faster than that, which indicates some inflationary effect on our results. I think the good news for us is that surge levels are actually coming down, ETAs are coming down. So as the marketplace becomes more balanced, we actually see strength in terms of trip growth going forward. And we're hoping if we do our jobs, and so far so good in onboarding more and more drivers, that prices on Uber will ease going forward. At the same time, drivers will make really strong earnings as well at the same time. We've heard so many dire warnings about the economy. Jamie Dimon has said he's preparing for an economic hurricane. I just spoke to Apple CEO Tim Cook, who said, you know, he plans to be deliberate in Apple spending. You've said in the past that you think Uber is recession resistant. Do you still believe that uh, if we continue to see these down, downward trends? And what is Uber's strategy to navigate continuing downward trends? Well, I think you're certainly seeing it in our results, which is, uh, there have been a bunch of earnings re results out there, and, and sometimes they've been less than great. I think Uber's earnings have been terrific in every way, top-line uh, growth, profitability uh, growth as well. Um, at the same time, we are being disciplined in terms of how we grow going forward. This is why our margins are improving so much on a year-on-year -year basis. Free cash flow is now positive as well because of the scale that we have. Because we're in multiple businesses, both in mobility and delivery, I think we have the kind of business that can perform in all weather. But at the same time, we are being disciplined in terms of costs to make sure that as the environment, if it gets tougher, we are prepared. The other factor that I point out, too, is that you have seen, you know, during the pandemic, huge amount of spend went into retail and out of services. Now we're seeing the reversal of that money coming out of retail and into services. And Uber is the ultimate service company. And we're benefiting from that. So you can expect us to perform better than the overall environment, certainly this year. When we look at next year, we have to be careful because those comps can go against us, which is why we are bringing real cost discipline into the business, growing top line and a bottom line. 
So tell me a little bit more about what you mean by discipline. Does that, could that impact hiring? You know, any plans for layoffs or cutbacks on staff, as we're seeing at other tech companies? I think the good news for us is with top line growth of 36%, certainly no plans for layoffs, but we are being more disciplined in terms of headcount growth. So we're adding headcount to key areas. Let's say uh, Uber for business salespeople, that part of our business is growing uh, very, very quickly. Or advertising business, uh, which is a very, very high margin business and growing as well. So we are adding heads selectively to parts of the portfolio that are growing in really strong and powerful ways. Otherwise, word scale already, we are going to leverage costs, both variable costs and fixed costs going forward. And I think this environment that is demanding more discipline, it's the perfect environment for Uber competitively. Dara, good morning, it's Guy. Um, picking up on that point, how much of current spend do you think is discretionary? You know, we do have a fair amount of discretionary spend in terms of marketing spend or incentive spend. We continue to have driver sign-on bonuses or guarantees uh, as, as earnings are elevated uh, to make sure that drivers feel safe onboarding onto the platform and then see the earnings, the great earnings uh, for themselves. So there's certainly some discretionary spend and you're seeing that in terms of the margin efficiency of the company. Our gross profit margins, for example, uh, are up year on year, and we are our fixed costs are growing at much slower rates than that 36% gross bookings uh, growth rates. We are speaking with Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi. Uh, I'm joined by Bloomberg's Emily Chang on Bloomberg Television and Radio. Dara, you talked a moment ago about growth markets. Let's talk about markets where maybe you are not seeing that growth. Where are you reevaluating right now? There's been some conversations, certainly I've heard, talking about the idea that maybe you could withdraw from India. Oh, those uh, conversations are entirely false. We've said it a bunch of times and I'll say it again. Uh, our India business in terms of mobility is at performing at excellent, excellent rates. We're very happy with that business. We did exit uh, India delivery business. We didn't think we could be a top one or two player. And there are certain markets, Brazil, for example, on delivery where we decide to get out. Essentially, if we don't think we have a chance to get to number one within a reasonable cost, uh, uh, we will look to be disciplined in terms of our portfolio. But when you look at our portfolio, both mobility and delivery, both are growing at healthy rates. We're either number one or number two in the markets that we compete in, and we're very, very confident going forward. And to be clear, we are staying in mobility in India. We love the market. So, Dar, are you confirming there that you're selling your stake in Zomato? I mean, we've heard that a big shareholder is selling. This is the big food delivery company in India, and there are reports that Uber is selling its stake. Yeah, no comment on those reports one way or the other. Okay. Um, so let's talk about the markets to Guy's point about where Uber might not be growing as much. You mentioned on the call that West Coast markets are taking a little bit longer to come back. And I, I'm, I'm thinking about San Francisco and how it's been a struggle to get workers back to the office. How are you thinking about this and Uber's, for example, Uber's own flexible work policies? Do you see uh, the flexibility that you're giving workers holding up into next year, for example? It does, it does feel like a tale of two coasts. You know, when we look <laughs> at the 
the East Coast, New York, Miami, even uh, cities, Atlanta, Austin, Dallas, uh, our business is coming back, is roaring back uh, at this point, and we feel great about that business. Now, the San Francisco markets, Los Angeles, Seattle, they're certainly coming back, but when you look at the absolute levels versus pre-pandemic levels, uh, it's a very, very different story. Um, and, you know, we'll keep pushing and we will do our part to make sure that we've got ample supply uh, in those markets uh, and the service works very well. As it relates to Uber, uh, you know, we believe in two things. One is we want people to get out and getting out means going back to the office as well. And at the same time, we believe in flexibility. So we are going with a hybrid model. We're encouraging employees who don't want to be remote only to come in 50 percent of the time. And I will tell you, when you get together uh, with your workmates, especially in a world and an area where you're working as hard as you are as it relates to Uber, especially as you care so much about your impact, getting together in person is a great jolt of energy. I very much believe in it, but ultimately we want, we want the best of both worlds. It's gonna get more competitive out there. Um, you've got Amazon investing in Grubhub. What do you think that means for you? Well, we're very confident of our delivery business, uh, grew 12% on a year-on-year -year basis, constant currency, and our share in the U.S. has been very, very consistent. The focus for us is to drive profitability of our delivery business. So we had a record quarter in terms of profitability, 99 million in EBITDA, and we expect that profitability to increase going forward. In terms of Amazon and Grubhub, we've seen zero uh, material effect on us. We work with Amazon, for example, in Japan, uh, and because of our global scope and scale, we have a lot of chances to work with different players. Amazon is a great company, uh, and we'll, work to, we'll look to work with them however we can. Now, if there was an area of, of weakness, uh, you could say in the report, I'm looking at delivery, delivery bookings mix, missed expectations by about a billion, and you're forecasting it'll be flat for the current quarter. Given just how big a part of the business this has become post-pandemic, do you think a slowdown in delivery could potentially drag down the rest? Well, I think that the slowdown that we're seeing in delivery is, is really a measure of the comps, right? Last year, the delivery business was growing unbelievably quickly. If you look at delivery growth in the U.S., Uber Eats grew 25% year-on-year. Our overall uh, U.S. delivery business grew 21% year-on-year. Uh, the growth rate that we're seeing internationally is affected by comps the year before. And if you compare delivery to two years ago, both the U.S. and international are growing at an annual rate of 40 plus percent, which is super, super healthy. So we're big believers in delivery. The focus this year is really to drive profitability. We are at scale. We're the number one or number two player in the vast majority of markets that we compete in. And it's time for delivery to get profitable and we are going to lead in that aspect. Let's wrap it up there, guys. Stock's up 15.4%. Pretty good day at the office. Dara, great to catch up. Thank you very much indeed. Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi and, of course, Bloomberg's Emily Chang. This uh, is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. 
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.